short news briefs from the Philadelphia Catholic Standard, which is an official weekly newspaper of the Archdiocese of Washington, USA. First of all, there's a man called Samuel Massey. Samuel Massey is in the top left-hand corner um, up there. Samuel Massey is a 27-year-old Pakistani street cleaner. One day, while he was cleaning the garden in, the cap in a garden in the capital of Lahore, he was accused of deliberately piling garbage up against the wall of a mosque. He was arrested, thrown into prison, and then he was repeatedly tortured for his faith. While in prison, a police constable decided to earn a place in Yama, which is paradise, and so killed him with a brick-cutting hammer. Our second story is the bottom right-hand lady there, a lady called uh, Sister Dorothy Stang. Sister Dorothy Stang is 73 years of age when this particular story um, came out. Uh, she was working in the Brazilian rainforest and her role as a missionary, she felt, was to protect particularly the peasant landowners from the exploitation of logging firms and ranchers. One day she was walking to a meeting of the poor peasants to support them when she was accosted by two armed men. She knew exactly what was going to happen to her. She took out her Bible and she began reading to them. And for a few minutes they listened. But then suddenly they shot her six times and left her on the side of the road. Then we turn to the man at the top there, Father Raghid Ghani. He was born in 1972 in the country of Iraq. He became a Christian through his family and he felt the call of God. So he ended up going to Rome and he learnt to become a priest. He did his theological studies there. And while he was there, he felt God calling him to go back to the country of Iraq as a Catholic priest. As a priest, he actually had learnt to speak four languages. And he also started to work for a, as a foreign missions correspondent for Asia News. One night, he'd been celebrating Mass in his small church with his congregation. The congregation left and he and his three cousins, who were also deacons in that church, went to lock the door of the church and they were met by a man on the street he said to them, close the church down and convert to Islam immediately. They refused. They were shot there and then on the street. The man then lifted these four people into a motor car full of explosives and he left the motor car on the side of the street so people walking by could see what would happen to people who worship Jesus. The bomb squad actually eventually disabled the bomb and they were given an honourable burial. And finally, the lady in the bottom left-hand corner there is a lady called Suk Ok Lee. And she lives in Northern Korea. Northern Korea is um, the country which has topped, if you like, the most persecuted nations of the world for so many years now. And she survived seven years in a North Korean uh, woman's prison simply because she was a Christian. 
When she was let out, she testified, testified to many guards who murdered Christians by pouring molten iron on their heads. Dying for Christ in our country of New Zealand seems almost surreal. <clears throat> we live in a part of the world where Christianity really makes the news and let it is to be mocked or to be defamed. Otherwise, the media is strangely silent about modern Christian martyrdom. Archbishop of Denver said this, Three things distinguish anti-Christian persecution and discrimination around the world. Firstly, it's ugly. Secondly, it's growing. And thirdly, the mass media generally ignores or downplays its gravity. Now today, we're looking at what Tom Wright, the theologian Tom Wright, says the most puzzling part of the book of Revelation. So thank you, Howard. This is found in the first part of Revelation chapter 11, the first 15 verses. But firstly, I want to very quickly recap where we are in our story of Revelation. So last year, we looked at chapters 1 to 3, and these were the letters to the seven churches, um, and this was our introduction to Revelation. And you remember those churches were commended for various things. Um, they were criticized where they could pull their socks up. And they were encouraged to remain faithful in this flood of Roman persecution that was coming their way. And then in chapter 4 and 5, earlier this year, we looked at what we would call the central theme of the book of Revelation. And the central theme is that God is on the throne and Jesus Christ has won the victory. That is the central theme of Revelation. The theme here is that God actually is in charge. And even though things are happening around the world, God is still seated upon the throne. It's his world. He ain't going to let human beings destroy it. He's in charge. Then in verses six to 11, uh, chapter 6 to 11, we've been looking at several scenes where the scroll, which is God's history of the world, has been unsealed by Christ. And as the seals are opened, various judgments fall upon the earth. We hear of earthquakes, we hear of wars, we hear of pestilence, we hear of people's love getting cold, we hear of all these things. But in the midst of this, we are reminded one thing, that Christians, people who believe in Jesus, have been given the Holy Spirit. They are marked with a seal. This is God's mark of ownership upon his people. This is God's special grace to protect and strengthen God's people. You see, God is patiently waiting for people in the earth to repent and to turn to the Creator. And so he's patiently waiting for this to happen. Amidst all these troubled times, 
Deep in the heart of every human being is a desire for the holy. Ecclesiastes says, for you have put eternity in the hearts of every human being. And so in a crisis, God is wanting his creation to turn to him. And so here we are in chapter 11. And chapter 11 is divided into two parts. The first part focuses on the temple and the two witnesses. And the second part focuses on what we call the seventh trumpet. The first part, briefly, is basically about the church. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. It's about the role that the church has to play in ushering in the kingdom of God. And secondly, we then look at the seventh trumpet, and with the seventh trumpet sounding, we heard today about the fact that all the kingdoms of the world that were left became the kingdoms of our Lord and our Christ. The kingdom of God has arrived and come. So let's look at verses 1 to 14. And this is what we hear. You might remember the story. We hear about John being given a measuring rod. And the measuring rod is to measure the temple of God and those who worship there. But he's instructed to leave the outer courts of the Gentiles where they're trampling each other to death. Then we hear of two witnesses, two powerful witnesses, dressed in sackcloth, which is a sign of repentance, uh, coming up out, if you like, of the, um, uh, 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 out into the world and prophesying powerfully and many, many people coming to Christ. Finally, we hear about the appearance of a beast. This is Satan coming up, in fact, out of the bottomless pit called hell. And he eventually fights against the witnesses and destroys them. What follows is a party time. The bodies of the two witnesses are left in the streets. They're not allowed to be buried. And people rejoice that the message of the gospel has been silenced. So they can just get on and do what they want. But finally, these two dead bodies are raised to life. The Holy Spirit, the breath of God comes upon these two bodies and they're raised up and that causes everyone in the world to wonder and to worship God. So what's this all about? Most commentators agree that this is a parable about the church. These are the final events before Christ's kingdom will arrive in its glory. You see, the temple represents the church. Throughout the New Testament, the church is described not as a building, but as a living entity. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.16, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? And Peter reaffirms this because he was writing to very persecuted Christians and he said, you also are living stones. You're being built into a living house. So here the temple represents the church and John is given the task of measuring the church, the actual building and the people that worship there. 
Being asked to measure the church is a real encouragement to us. When you measure something, it implies your knowledge, your care, your detailed and infinite knowledge of what you're trying to measure. You've got to get it right. And here is God measuring his church, caring for his church. It's his church. It's his family. He owns it. Christ won it with his blood. And so it's precious to him. John is told not to measure the outer courts and the city, but to measure the church. In this passage, it has a lot more to say about the role of the church because we hear of these two witnesses appearing and being given power to prophesy and witness to the world. We read in verses 3 and 6, I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. They have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. They have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Now these are not two literal people like Billy Graham or whoever or Wesley. These are not two specific people because you have to understand it's a parable. It's a story. These represent two of God's amazing prophetic, prophetic ministers from the Old Testament. Did you hear the echo of turning the waters to blood and shutting up the heavens from the rain? These, this is what Moses and Elijah did. So these are prophetic messengers from the Old Testament that the Christians in those early days would have understood. Oh yes, we know Elijah and Moses. This represents the ministry of the church. This is what we are called to do. And of course, um, Moses and Elijah were the two that were, trans when Jesus was transfigured, they were the ones standing next to him on the Mount of Transfiguration. They represent God's perfect word, you know, Moses was the one that brought the Ten Commandments, the perfect word of God, and they represent God's prophetic ministry to the earth. Now, it's these two ministries that the church is called to carry out and practice by faith in the world, declaring the gospel of God with signs and wonders, just like Jesus did. And the reason why the church can do this is because the church has been given the Holy Spirit. Do you remember in that reading, the breath of God coming upon those dead bodies and raising them up? When we become Christians, we receive the breath of God, the power of God. And Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He's talking to the church. And the church has just the same power that Moses and Elijah, Peter, Paul had. Just the same power. We have the same Holy Spirit. I don't know if you know, this is a little test. Who did God say was the greatest Old Testament minister? It was John the Baptist. This is what he said. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. 
but he who is at least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. The Holy Spirit in the Old Testament was given to particular people at particular times for particular purposes. Sorry, this is the wrong slide that we're talking to. We should go just back one, um, if you don't mind. Thank you. Um, the Holy Spirit was given to particular people at particular times for particular purpose. But in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church. And the reason for that is, of course, God wants the whole world to come to know him. So he's going to empower his people to take the gospel to all the nations of the world. My question to you is, do you feel um, greater than John the Baptist? No? Well, it's not what the Bible says. It says that you are actually greater than John the Baptist. So will you turn to your friend and say, you're greater than John the Baptist? Could you just say that? Did you know that? You are greater than John the Baptist. But the thing about John the Baptist was he was beheaded. I can see a few people shaking their heads. No, I don't want that. Thank you very much. He was beheaded. Why? Because he preached the truth that the king should repent. And the king didn't like that. And his wife certainly didn't like it. And he was beheaded. When you preach the truth, the truth of God's word, you're going to come against opposition. You see, what happened to the two witnesses? It says in verse 7, when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them and overcome them and kill them. This is Satan coming, coming up against the church and wanting to destroy the church. See, the church is God's idea. It's Christ's idea. He's the head of the church, and Satan wants to destroy it. This is a word about martyrdom. That's where I started today. I told you the stories of four martyrs. Last night I was um, reading a little bit of bedtime reading, Fox's Book of Martyrs. Um, and this was written by a man in the 16th century about all the uh, martyrs up until that time, and they've added a modern piece now of all the martyrdom that's happened in, since um, the 16th century. And some of the stories are so horrific. Okay, next slide, please. So around the world today, what we need to grasp a hold of is this. There is a lot of persecution of Christians in the world today. A lot of persecution. Do you know that in the last 2,000 years since Christ, they estimate that 70 million people have died for Christ. And in the last century, 45.5 million people have died for Christ of that 70 million. In the last century alone. A scholar called Robert Royal refers to the past century as one of the darkest periods of martyrdom since the beginning of Christianity. According to Open Doors, which is a... Uh, a ministry which looks based on Brother Andrew's amazing ministry, taking Bibles into Russia and into the Eastern Bloc. Open Doors is a ministry which looks at the persecuted church and encourages Christians to pray for our brothers and to support them. Do you know that there are 340 million Christians living in places where they experience high levels of persecution in the world today? 
Last year, they estimate that 4,761 Christians were killed for their faith, 4,488 churches and other Christian buildings were ransacked, 4,277 believers were, were believers were detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, and imprisoned in the last year. Nina Shea, who's the director of Freedom House's Puebla program for religious freedom, says this, Christians are by far the most persecuted religious group in the world today. The most atrocious human rights and abuses are committed against Christians solely because of their religious beliefs and their activities. Atrocities such as torture, enslavement, rape, imprisonment, killings, and even crucifixion. And there are three or four primary reasons why this happens, because this is where we need to see. What is Satan's job? His job is to, kill, is to destroy, to kill, and what is it? to rob, kill, and destroy. That's his job. And he's wanting to rob, kill, and destroy the church. And he does it through resurgent communist regimes and authoritarian governments. He does it through religiously intolerant forms of um, faith, like in India. Radical Hinduism is causing many Christians to suffer. And of course, we know about radical Islam. But you know, even in the West, where materialism is creeping in and secular humanism is creeping in, Satan is behind it all and he wants to destroy the church. So returning to John's vision, it seems like the church has been defeated. It seems like it's been destroyed. The dead body of the two witnesses are left in the street for everybody to gloat over. And people were even celebrating and sending presents to one another. It's a bit like the atheists or anti-Christians public holiday which is called April Fool's Day because it says that a fool does not believe that there's a God. That's what it's happening. But this is not the end of the story because we read, now after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them and they heard a, a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here and they ascended up into heaven in a cloud and their enemies saw them in the same hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell in the earthquake, and 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. You see, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And that vindicates the truth of the gospel he was preaching. He was preaching about the kingdom of God. And the religious people thought they had ended it. He rose from the dead. And so it is with us. This is why the resurrection is the linchpin of our gospel. Christians who have faithfully witnessed and died for our Lord amidst suspicion, godless ages, and violent and mocking world will be vindicated at the time of the resurrection. And as Christians, this is really important today because we need to be aware of what is happening in the world. We need to be aware about the suffering of our brothers and sisters in the world today as they stand for Christ. We need to do this because we need to thank God for our lot, but we need to do this too because we need to be inspired ourselves to be more concerned about the fate of those people who do not 
follow the Lord. We need to be inspired and challenged by that. And here's a question I want to ask us. Maybe, and I'm not saying this is the case. Next slide, please. Maybe, this is just a maybe question. Maybe the phenomenal growth of persecution of Christians in the last century is a key to understand the times that we're in now. Jesus said, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the world as a witness to all the nations and then the end will come because in Revelation 11 we see the attempted destruction of the church and then what happens in verses 15 onwards? The last trumpet is sounded. The trumpet is sounded, the seventh trumpet, which we've been waiting for in Revelation 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. Suddenly it sounded. And God's patience... This everlasting patience for the last 2,000 years has suddenly ended and the seventh trumpet is blown. Now time does not allow me to unpack verses 15 to 19, you'll be pleased to know. It's too late to repent when that seventh trumpet is sounded. It's just too late. I want you to pause now and I want you to just close your eyes and I want you to think. I want you to think of that time in your life when God suddenly became real to you as a living being. I want you to think about that and I want you to thank God that he called you out of this world into his kingdom. Can you just do that for a minute? You see, when that seventh trumpet blows, there are two things that are going to happen. And it tells us quite clearly in the scriptures here. Those, both weak and small and grand and all that sort of thing, are going to inherit the kingdom of God. Your reward is coming. Those who have not repented, this is the salutary lesson That is it. There's no more chances. It is sobering. There's a man called J.M. Hamilton who wrote a little poem about Revelation 11. And it goes like this. Through flame and flood, with plague and blood, the gospel is proclaimed. The spirit flows, the church it grows, the beast he is enraged. Measuring rod and line outstretched, the father knows his own. As martyrs die, the saints will sigh and cry out, Lord, how long? And then at last, the trumpet blast, and Christ will reign as king. Creation sings, the praises ring. For this, the world was made. And I want to leave us with four thoughts. And they are this. How much do we really hate the works of evil? Hate Satan and hate the works of evil. And 
how about we spend a bit of time interceding for our persecuted brothers and sisters in other nations of the world? In the pastoral email last week, and I'll put it again this week, I'll put a couple of websites that you might like to check out to find out about what's happening to our Christian brothers and sisters. Secondly, we need to be interceding for our families and our friends and our neighbours and those who God puts across our path. We need to be praying for them, that they will come to Christ, that Christ will be merciful to them, just as he was merciful to you and me and came into our lives. Thirdly, we need to take what we know and who we know to those outside the church fellowship. We need to be fearless about it. And lastly, we need to ask God to revive the church and to ask him to not say, Lord, please revive the church, but I'm going off to play golf. It's, Lord, revive the church and begin with me. That's that's where it begins. And I would encourage you as the church to be sober, to be vigilant, to be attentive to the times that we're in. Let's pray.